Imagine a fantasy world where magic is like oil. For better or worse, society depends on it. Now, imagine it runs out. The epic struggle that results just might make for a pretty compelling fantasy book. Welcome to The Fantasy End, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Brian McClellan. His latest novel, In the Shadow of Lightning, kicks off his Glass Immortals trilogy from Tor Books. Brian and I discuss the business lessons he learned through self-publishing, the sheer work that goes into complex epic fantasy, and how incredibly cool we both were in high school marching band. All right, on that note, let's skip to the good part. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Brian. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. And I will say, so I know you have your own podcast, so I was listening to it to do some research, and I saw that you are also an ex-marching band graduate. So I was a saxophone <laughs> section leader for two years. So I think you were a sousaphone? <laughs> yeah, I was sousaphone. I was sousaphone for four years, section leader for, I think actually section leader for two Okay. I think so. Yeah. Cause I just by default, you know, when you only have, when you're a small <laughs> school um, and you, they, the band director likes you, even though he knows you're really bad, um, you know, you just kind of get do- defaulted into, into being a leader, I suppose. That was a big surprise for me too, because similar circumstances, there's a lot of politics that go on in like middle school, high school, marching band, not something you would expect from the outside, but I mean, Hey, politics isn't everything. Uh, it's uh <laughs> no it's totally true it um i i found that there were there were some kids that it was all about how good they were right and mm-hmm. then there were other kids like me who was about who were about you know whether people liked them and the band director liked me the other kids liked me and so i you know i just kind of ended up there even though the band director knew i i mean i couldn't i couldn't play worth crap i was so bad um, I hated practicing. <laughs> I, I didn't, I just wasn't good. I no musical talent whatsoever, but you know, I, yeah, I was fun and I, I smiled really well and things like that. So it worked. The, these are leadership qualities that I'm hearing right there. So it makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> There's a photograph. I don't even know if it's still up there. There's a photograph from the very early days of, uh, of Facebook of me using my mouthpiece like a bong and like, I mean, I wasn't, I was, you know, I was 17. I wasn't really a bong, but I was pretending. Right. Sure. sure. And it just like that kind of dumb crap. Like we fooled around and the band, but it was like really, it was dumb, but harmless kind of crap. We never destroyed anything or anything like that. And, uh, I don't know. My band director just, for some reason he liked me and he left me in a leadership role, even though his son was in my section. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, his son went on to play gosh i can't remember if he played sousaphone or if he went back to trombone for ohio state like he like serious wow. marching band um okay and uh and he did he did that for years uh like i think his entire time there at the school but um yeah he was actually good <laughs> i wasn't <laughs> well kid of the band director <laughs> that probably has something to do with it yeah he better be good all right. Well, so a way I kind of always like to start these interviews, because believe it or not, I don't ask everyone about their experience in marching band is, can you remember <laughs> what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Oh man. I mean, 
there's it, it was probably a series of events um you know like yeah as it always is right it's it, sure. I, th- I feel like it's rarely one thing that that affects your life greatly enough to really you know put you on a certain path but uh just like gut response would be my mom reading to me you know reading uh reading uh chronicles of narnia and the hobbit and uh just kind of that uh that I don't know, uh, parental intimacy of just like laying down, you know, when I was three or four and just, you know, right before bed, it was a tradition of, I would come and climb in bed with her and she would read to me from something, you know, I had a, we had a bunch of different books and then, you know, I would pretend to fall asleep. So dad would carry me to my bed, um, when he came to bed and that, that only lasted until maybe five or so. And then he finally was like, yeah, you're just walking kid. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, probably my mom reading to me, and she she was very encouraging in terms of me wanting to read and wanting to, you know, devour stuff. You know, um, when I was, gosh, I couldn't have been more than four or five, and I I got into a Robin Hood and a King Arthur kick um, right around the same time. I think a lot of kids do, you know, the kids, you know, bookish kids. And I was reading everything that I could, even things that were way beyond my, you know, ability. I was trying to get through them. And she took me to a lecture on, I believe it was a lecture on King Arthur that was done by the Latin teacher at the high school library. And, uh, and it was like me and a bunch of adults. And I, I've, but she took me to it and she, and I sat and I asked questions afterwards and, uh, and I listened to this lecture and, I don't know that kind of stuff, you know, that stays with you when, uh, when you're kind of encouraged to, you know, dive into that. And my mom, uh, volunteered at the library. So every Wednesday night I would go hang out with her. Uh, and by hang out with her, I mean, I would roll my eyes incessantly while she talked to her old lady friends. And then I would go wander around in the books and I would find books and I would bring a big gigantic stack of, you know, I would, I would have the diversity of Winnie the Pooh VHSs and, you know, a copy of Ivanhoe that I definitely couldn't read at that age. And I would just bring everything I could home. And I, you know, I constantly hit the limit of, you're not supposed to, you know, check out more than 12 books at once or whatever. And, uh, and then the <laughs> librarians all liked me. So they'd look the other way and they'd say, okay, just this one time. And, and then I would devour everything and, you know, and, uh, and I would, and yeah, and that continued as I grew up, you know, I would be, I would jump between, you know, binge watching VHSs of Darkwing Duck and, uh, and, you know, reading, you know, Young Jedi Knight, you know, this, the Young Jedi Knight series, you know, stuff like that. So, so I, I, it probably starts with my mom, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love that. Most people, I feel like it starts with either like one of their parents, their mom or their dad, some kind of experience with reading as a young kid. Um, I know for me, it was just, I was like, hey, I have a box of old fantasy books up in the attic. Have at. I was like, all right, <laughs> this is cool stuff right here. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I have a bunch of older siblings uh, that were a lot older than me. So I didn't really interact with them. Right? We didn't talk about books or anything, but they had their cast offs everywhere in the house. You know, they would just have, you know, like you said, a box full of books. And I would pick them up and I'd read them and, and move on to the next thing. And, yeah, so so that yeah, definitely that that family influence, right? And okay, so figured also following that starts you off with a nice easy softball question. So your biggest fear used to be that you wouldn't be able to keep up the full time writing gig. Still feel that way? 
Oh man, you know, it's a weird thing because it's definitely there. Like it's one of those things that drives me as a writer is, Mm -hmm. is that I have no other discernible skills. If, if I have several books flop, then, then I'm screwed, right? <laughs> like I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm back to flipping burgers. Actually, more likely, I, I start self-publishing like crazy to try to because I would, I would almost certainly make more money self-publishing than I would working minimum wage. But my only other option besides writing is finding a crappy minimum wage job or going back to school or something like that. And uh, and so yeah, it definitely. It's definitely a fear. I don't think I don't spend a lot of time ruminating on it, um, but it's there. Like it, it sits in my subconscious and says, "Hey, you better get some crap done today." You know, like if you take three weeks to play Civ instead of writing, you're three weeks behind on your career, and and you can't afford that. Um, uh, and uh, and sometimes I do it anyways, <laughs> but uh, but it's. Um, but it's definitely there. Um, it's not in the forefront of my mind, but it's, it exists for sure. Yeah. I mean, how long do you think it took for that to leave the forefront of your mind and become something that, you know, it's there, but it's not like the constant drive. You know, it was probably the first few years of my career. Um, Mm -hmm. honestly, it probably, it probably stopped right around the time my first trilogy earned out. Because when my first trilogy earned out, I was very fortunate that it earned out a large advance, and so it was. Uh, so so when I started making royalties on it, I looked. I, I I knew what was coming in. I knew the sales numbers, and it was pretty obvious that it was doing well. It was doing well enough that I, that it was a full time job worth of money coming in in the background while I worked on my next series. And that was that moment where I was like, wow, I'm, I'm wildly lucky with this and I'm going to take advantage of it, but it's also going to give me like a psychological buffer of, of not having to be constantly thinking of, okay, am I, am I absolutely messed up here? Um, sorry. Can you hear my cat? I'm sorry. Is that a cat I hear over there? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes he wakes up from a nap and just starts crying. Leto, buddy, I'm right here. You dummy. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh no problem. I have three cats, so <laughs> yeah. No, he just uh, yeah. He's been as he gets older, he occasionally just like just like suddenly like bolt awake and be like, "Where is everybody?" and start crying <laughs> until somebody answers him. So so yeah. Um, I forget what I was saying. Right. So so it was it was probably right around that point when when the first trilogy earned out, and I I was starting to feel confident you know, financially, I was no longer, you know, carrying credit card debt. I was no longer worried constantly about, okay, am I going to have to juggle some things to make money work this month? Uh, am I going to have to put off paying taxes quarterly and then just pay the, you know, the, you know, the, the fine kind of at the end of the year for not doing that? You know, am I going to have to eat these various things to try to juggle, you know, money? Cause when you're a writer, your income is very inconsistent. It, you know, you could get, you can make $150,000 one year and 10,000 the next. Um, alternately you can make five months in a row. You can make, you know, just maybe a handful of, of, of dollars from, you know, some small foreign rights contracts. And then suddenly on the sixth month, you get a royalty check for, you know, 80 grand. 
and then you're back to making, you know, yeah, like an average of $200 a month for the next five months. You know, this is like, that's just, it's so screwy because of how it spikes and falls and spikes and falls. And even if you're doing very well, you know, as a writer, you don't earn, you don't have benefits. You don't have, you know, you don't have a weekly income. That's all stuff you have to manage yourself. And so you're paying your taxes because nobody pulls it out for you. You're paying your taxes. You're paying your uh, medical bills, uh, your medical insurance. You're paying all of that stuff that you like a a, a good salaried job might provide. Um, right. And uh, and you know and that's not just writers. Obviously, that's also anybody who works contract work. Um, but with writers, it tends to be big spikes of income. And then lo- a long time of not getting anything, and uh, and that's one of the reasons I started self-publishing little novellas and things on the side uh, in my universe is that it was so nice to have a consistent, you know, even one or two grand coming in every month because then you're like, oh, okay, uh, you know, that's my mortgage, and and I can feel more confident about you know that you're waiting for forever to get paid for my next royalty. Um, royalty check uh, when I have a small income coming in passively every month, and uh, and so yeah, it's a it's a weird thing. But uh, funny enough, that was probably about the same time I stopped looking at my reviews constantly. You know, it was just <laughs> there when you when you reach a point of security, your all your paranoias they're still there, but they're muted, right? They're they're just they're a lot quieter. And so I, I love that you mentioned self-publishing because I know so you've also I'm not sure if they're full novel length or novellas, but you do have some urban fantasy books as well that you self-published. So what yeah. what drove that? You know, self-published and totally outside of the Powder Mage universe. Um, well, that one was there was a couple things. One of them, one was that I wanted to self-publish something that wasn't supported by Powder Mage because when I put out a novella. I know that Powder Mage fans are going to be interested. And it's not a huge amount. It's, you know, maybe 5 or 10% of people who read, you know, Promise of Blood will pick up a novella. You know, I, I don't know. That's roughly something like that. It's a small percentage, but hey, it's it's people I know that are interested. And uh, because, they, because they're familiar with the universe. Um, but I wanted to try it with something that was brand new. And I wanted to see if I could, I I wanted to play with advertising. I wanted to play with algorithms and like all all the business stuff with self-publishing. I really wanted to play with, but also it was a story that had been floating around my head for years and I knew it wouldn't take a ton of work. And my agent thought it was a fun story. And, uh, and so I did it. It was, um, you know, like I had had this idea, my final job that I quit to become a full-time author was I worked for about four months for a collection agency, just in the call center, crappy little collection agency. It was, it was a, it was owned by a friend of a friend who, and I needed a job really badly. And they were, as far as collection agencies goes, it was, it was kind of one of the nice ones. You know, they just called people and said, Hey, you owe some money. And then when they swore at you and hung up, you just went, okay, I'll call the next person. Um, and, but I had this idea while sitting in my car eating lunch one day of a collection agency that worked for hell. And, and I thought it was just one of those pitches, you know, when you have a perfect pitch, it, it was such a good pitch that, that my agent loved it. I loved it and I wanted to do something with it. And then, you know, so it became Valkyrie Collections and, um, and I've gotten two books written 
And I've promised people forever there's going to be more. And there will be someday when I'm not writing epic fantasy because I know that's what will make me money and keep me from having to go work crappy jobs again. Yeah. So, I mean, since you did have that business experience, what did you think of it? Was it eye-opening? Was it something that, you know, you enjoyed, hated? How was it? Uh, for the self-publishing? Yeah. 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 You know what? I, I, I realized that... I realized that a lot of the self-publishing gurus, you know, because it is, it's an ecosystem that has a a big echo chamber in it. Lots of people love to talk about how amazing self-publishing is. And in some ways it really is amazing. You get full control, you get a lot more money per book. Um, There's so many things that are great about doing it yourself. But also I realized at some point that the people that truly make good money, that make crazy money off of uh, self-publishing are people that are either trained or naturally gifted at marketing. Not people that are amazing writers necessarily. Some of them are for sure, but the, the skill requirement is leans far more into you being a really good marketer than you being a really good author. And, and I realized it was a skill set that I probably could develop. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people that I do an okay job at most things that I put my mind to. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not a true jack of all trades. I'm not an expert or anything like that. But if I really put my mind to it, I do an okay job at it. Um, and I probably could have figured that out. But man, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of things to remember. It's a lot of things to, to, to do on a daily basis. And, and I realized at some point, man, that's, I, I enjoy the business part of self-publishing. I will continue to do it when I have the opportunity, but man, the marketing side of it is such a massive pain in my butt that I am going to, I'm going to lean more in towards, towards continuing to develop my mainstream career so that when I self-publish something that can support it rather than me having to dive into being a marketing guru every time I put out a little novella. So, so I think the biggest thing I learned was that it's just, it's a massive pain in the butt and, and you have to, and and I'm, I, I, my moods can swing on that sort of thing. I can feel like I, I want to, you work on my own business really hard and I can feel that way one day, and the next day I can go, well, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to just sit down and write. Uh, so, so the biggest thing I learned was basically, yeah, don't, it's, it's so much that you have to do that, that you really need to, e- you, you need to either love it or be naturally gifted to the point where it takes very little effort. And, and I, I have neither of those things going for me when it comes to marketing. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave that. I'll leave that to the people that are very good at it. Fair enough. I hear having uh, plenty of thousands of dollars to throw towards like uh, Facebook ads and Amazon ads and things like that helps as well. Well, and the thing is, is that uh, I did that. I did that with uh, Uncanny okay. Collateral because I, I gave myself a budget. I, I, you know, I threw thousands of dollars into the marketing stuff, and I, I probably got back ninety cents on a dollar. And that's not a good return by any means. <laughs> and and I and I was like, okay, well, I didn't lose all the money, but I'm not making money either. So that was a great experiment. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I don't. I'm not going to do it again. 
Yeah, I, and I know you've talked about this in interviews before, but I guess goal is to get to the point where you now have the fan base where it's just Brian McClellan fans, right? It's not Powder Mage fans. It's Brian McClellan fans. So then you self-publish something and you have that benefit, uh, you know, like the Powder Mage novellas. Yeah, that, that's definitely the hope. And I think that it's weird. It's a weird industry because... Because the the and and this isn't this isn't unique to us. This happens in things like comics and stuff like that too. Um, it, it's not unique to novelists in that the the brand of the the um, the world brand is far more recognizable than the person brand that's behind it. Um, and sometimes there's something that transcends that. You know, Neil Gaiman, Stephen King. Um, you know, like uh, what's the guy's name that did Watchmen? Um, uh, was it Alan Moore? Is that his name? It's Alan Moore. Yeah. Like, like there's certain artists that have transcended that to the point where, where their name is bigger than most of the brands that they do. Um, and, uh, but, but for most of us, that's not the case at all. Your, your name brand is, is gosh, maybe I like, and I'm pulling numbers out of my ass here. So, so, you know, bear with me on that, but maybe 10% of your full kind of fully realized um fan base cares about you the rest of them just want the thing you're working on uh and they want it to be the thing that they're familiar with you know which is you know the 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 little bit of nerves that i have going into a new series in you know a month from recording uh from from our recording right now i've got a new series coming out a new epic fantasy and and that's a bit of nerves there because because I know I'll bring, I'll bring tens of thousands of people with me to that series with my name, but I really want the hundreds of thousands of people who have read Powder Mage, and I know that I'm. Uh, they'll trickle in. Some of them will trickle in over time, uh, but I know that those people, most of those people, really only care about Powder Mage. Uh, you know, that's the biggest question I get constantly when I when I talk about having a new novel. The, the first question is, is it Powder Mage? You know, is it a sequel? Is it a new part of the universe? And it's like, guys, man, I did six books in that series with a bunch of short fiction. I, I want to do other things um, just to be just to not feel creatively bankrupt. Right. Uh, and. And so it's, but it's weird because, you know, you have that relationship with something that you work on. Some authors, you know, or creators of any kind, some of them grow to loathe the things that they work on, uh, the things that make them money. I've not, I don't loathe Powder Mage at all. I love Powder Mage. And, and at some point I'll get back to it. You know, I've got a couple of novellas in the back of my head. I've got a, a full length novel somewhere in there if I ever have the time, but, uh, but yeah, it's a it's it is a weird relationship that creators have with the thing that made their career and the fans that bought the thing that made their career. So that's where I'm sitting at, kind of. You know, maybe I'm <laughs> revealing too much here, but you know, with a with a new book coming out soon, that's where I'm sitting, kind of psychologically. Yeah, I mean that's that's got to be tough because you know it's going to be something of a success, right? Like you've got that fan base that a brand new debut doesn't have. But yeah, this is also your first chance. I mean, I guess in the non-self-published environment, stepping away for a totally new series. Yeah, yeah, in epic fantasy, you know, an epic fantasy is you know as much as I love Valkyrie Collections, it's not my bread and butter, and it's not my it's not kind of my first love, right? Uh, epic fantasy is and. 
And this is the first epic fantasy that I will have done that's not what made my career. And, and you know, that's, that's a nervous spot to be in. And I guess depending on who you ask, because I know you were talking to Brandon Sanderson and he said, oh, congrats on your first epic fantasy. <laughs> so, yeah, genre is a weird thing there. Yeah. And Brandon is one of those people that he cares a lot about genre. He, he you know, like he um, he has these things very firm in his mind. Uh, and uh, and I guess he he kind of considers Powder Mage like more military fantasy, flintlock fantasy kind of thing. Sure. And uh but honestly, it's weird because I feel like I could have taken that as an insult um, because I've always <laughs> considered myself an epic fantasy writer. But honestly, from Brandon, it's a huge compliment. And I, you know, it felt good to have him say to me, you know, this is the best thing you've done. And I, I really love it. And I think that you're becoming a better author. And, you know, coming from somebody with that kind of, you know, career, it, it feels really nice. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And there's got to be something that feels good, I would imagine, as well, that, you know, when you, I, I don't know exactly when you invented the idea for Power Mage, but, you know, you were a young writer on the scene at the time, and now you've got a decade of professional writing experience under your belt, give or take a little bit, right? And so now you've got your new idea with that experience. So yeah. I would hope this is the best thing you've ever done, right? And I hope that your fans <laughs> see that as well. Well, it's it's a weird thing because this is not it is not an unknown phenomenon for writers to do one series very well or even just one book of that series very well and then kind of fall off a cliff and for me personally that's a, that is actually a big fear that i will grow i don't know maybe uh, that i'll grow lazy in my writing or or i won't even notice that i've grown lazy, lazy in my writing and i think i think it's really easy to do as a writer and i think and and there's a reason why it happens to people because because it's it's easy to say oh i i did this one thing really well i'm going to keep doing this one thing really well i'm not going to try to change anything because if i change something i'll mess with the algorithm and fans will no longer like me and they're actually right when you think that you're actually right in some ways but i think i don't know personally i i always want to continue being better you know like i've yeah, on my own podcast, I talk a lot about how I, I don't consider myself like an artiste, right? I'm not, I, sure. I don't love writing for writing. I love writing because I'm quite good at it. And, and I love the stories and, and there's a lot, there's a lot going on there emotionally, but a lot of it is, you know, pure mercenary. I'm good at this thing. I want to do this thing for a living, but there is some of that little artiste in there, you know, even when I don't want to admit it. I, I want to continue being better at what I do. I want to have pride in what I'm putting out every time. And, uh, and it's interesting moving on from Powder Mage. Oh, I think something I've learned over the last few years is that, that when you try to take your epic fantasy, and this is something that I've been really trying to do for this new series, is that when you, when you take epic fantasy and you try to take it up a notch in terms of complexity, that is very difficult because um, I, I consider the Powder Mage books to be pretty straightforward plot-wise. Like it's got some good turns. There's cool things that happen. There's lots of you know. There's a few surprises, but I uh, I consider it to be pretty straightforward in terms of the plot. And I, I've wanted ever since I finished up Powder Mage, the the last of the six books, 
I've wanted my next thing to be more complex, more, more emotionally complex, more politically complex, more magically complex. There's lots of things going on there that I want to have uh, more developed. And I realized as I was writing in the shadow of lightning and rewriting and rewriting again, I realized that every notch that you take that complexity up, the reader will notice, you know, the, when the reader notices a 10% increase in complexity, the writer has put in a hundred percent increase in work. And that's something I didn't realize when I kind of set out to do that. And, uh, and it's an interesting spot to be in because you're like, cause part of your brain is like, Oh, maybe I should just go back to being really simple with these things, or at least what I consider pretty simple. And, uh, but I, I don't want to do that. I want to keep making it more complex. I want it to be more interesting for the fans, but also for me, right? I want I want to be sure. thinking about these things all the time, and I want I want to be solving these cool character and plot puzzles. And um, but the more more complex you get, the harder it becomes, and the more you have more work you have to put into it. And uh, and that's a weird place. I'm working on book two, the sequel for In the Shadow of Lightning, right now, and uh, and I'm 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 kind of grasping the complexity that I laid down in the universe for the first time and realizing, holy crap, I, I like, I'm pushing myself to the limit in terms of my capabilities. And it's, it is both terrifying and really, really cool. I don't know. I mean, I, I hope that it works out. I hope people, I hope people understand and love what I'm doing. Cause, uh, cause I, I don't really want to go back to having a crappy job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, part of that, you know, the whole you're doing a creative thing for a profit. You got to work on the creative, but you also got to worry about the profit. I mean, it yeah. sounds like you're falling into the the lovely area of every book is now going to be the hardest thing you've ever written, right? Pushing that envelope so that you can grow. It means, you know, you have to like have that growing pain. Well, I've talked to a couple other writers about this. There's this concept of of when you when you have reached a certain experience level as a writer, you no longer you you leave behind the idea of not knowing what to write and you enter a place at which you can imagine a million different things to write and you are you are frozen in indecision for like every single thing every conversation a character has every plot twist you can see it going a hundred different ways and and that's that's a different type of difficult because you now have to make choices based on you know it's like when you you it's, you know it's you're in a you're in the line at the supermarket and all there is is Kit Kat and you know Twix then you you take home a Kit Kat right there's nothing obviously you're going to choose the Kit Kat because Twix are garbage but if you walk into a specialty candy store that has every single worldwide flavor of Kit Kat. Suddenly, what the crap? Like what are you doing? Like you can't decide what to take home and then you end up spending $50 on Kit Kats. And that's how I feel as a writer sometimes. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. And so, yeah, you mentioned the conversations that you have with other writers. Um, I know a lot of those have been through your podcast. Obviously, some is just through your career as a writer. Um, but I would be remiss as a podcaster myself if I did not at least ask you a little bit about your podcast. Um, so as <laughs> uh, you know, fellow podcaster who goes in all in with hobbies, uh, how is Page Break going for you so far? Uh, you know, it's been a huge amount of fun. You know, there's I've I've poked at things that have 
ended up being a little bit more work than I wanted them to be. Uh, for instance, uh, I, I started recording video for all of them to upload to YouTube. And then I realized that it was extra editing. It was extra cost. It was, there were some complexities to that, that I didn't want to deal with. And, uh, and so I, I, I did a few episodes and then I backed off and now I'm back to just doing, you know, sound. But, uh, you know, other than a couple of times where I've kind of said to myself, okay, this is, this is more time and effort than I'm willing to put in. Honestly, it's just been a huge amount of fun. I've learned the tech side of it enough that episodes tend to go very smoothly. I know how to do them. I know, you know, what to tell my editor. I know I, I can now write an introduction, uh, the intro and outro, and then record it and be done with that in 20 minutes um, you know, yep. rather than fiddling for two hours, like I, at the very beginning, uh, you know, so I've, I've kind of mastered the little bits that you need to master, or at least, you know, at least be good enough with, right. And, uh, to make it so that it's not a pain in the butt and that it's mostly just me scheduling and then chatting with my friends. Uh, and I like that a lot. It's, it's fun. And so, and I've met a few new people that are very cool. And, and I've caught up with the old buddies that I haven't talked to in years. And, uh, and I really, I've, I've enjoyed that. I, I push back cause I've had a couple people tell me, Oh, this, I love that you've got a writing podcast. And I kind of push back at that cause I don't want it to be a writing podcast. You know, sometimes you know, we, and not sometimes a lot of times we talk about the craft of writing or the business of writing, but man, I, I more, I just want it to be casual like, you know, sit down for coffee with your creative buddy. Um, I want it to be that kind of thing. And, and there are some episodes where we don't talk about writing at all. We just talk about, you know, like somebody's childhood or their, or some hobbies that we both have, you know, like, and I, I, oh, weirdly, I, I tend to enjoy those the most. No, I, I get that. I know one of the favorite interviews that I did was, when the interviewee just turned it around on me, they're like, you know what? That's great. You have all these questions. I want to ask you some questions. And I'm like, oh, all right. Yeah, let's do this. <laughs> I've, I've had right? a couple yeah. of people do that to me. And it's it's always it's weird because I've had it happen several times now. It always takes me, it always catches me off guard. Uh, and, I, and I always like, I always find myself stumbling for answers because I'm like, oh man, I thought of this question to ask you, but I didn't think of what my answer would be. Um, but it's always fun when they do that. You know, it, it, it's weird because you you realize both as someone who has who interviews and is an interviewee, you realize that there are different type of people, there are different type of interviewees, um, and uh, you know some of them are are literally just there to pitch a product, and that's fine. You know, like the, we're all creative people that are trying to make a living at this. You know, some people are just there to do their marketing shtick. Other people don't want to talk about their books and they're relieved when you don't bring them up and other people other people want to be interviewed other people want to have a conversation um you know i float kind of halfway between those things i uh i i always come in wanting a conversation and then i as we've learned in the last 40 minutes um i end up just babbling non-stop about dumb crap um and, uh, and so I, I, it turns out that I am one of those people who just wants to be interviewed, apparently, um, you know, best intentions, uh, best intentions aside. Uh, but I, it's weird figuring out the type of people that 
that do these things and how they react and then realizing what you're like, you know? Uh, <laughs> okay, great. Okay, I have to ask, what have you discovered about Brian McClellan as a result of being on both sides of this interview curtain? I mean, I mean, kind of just what I just said, that it's, that it's a, that I, I, I will talk, I will talk nonstop about just, I just ramble, 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 just going everywhere. Like you ask me a question and I will go off into left field. Um, and I, it's funny cause when I do written interviews, I can't do that. You know, when I, when I look at a question that's written, I'm like, Oh, I've gotten this question a thousand times before. Here's a one sentence okay. answer. <laughs> um, but when I'm talking, when I'm able to like actual, like have a conversation, I, yeah, I just, whew, my brain is just, you know, vomiting out through my mouth. And I don't know, like, I, I, I hope that it always, that it comes across as charming and not as a giant pain in the ass. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the benefits of the audio medium, right, is you can't have strictly something that you've seen a million times before. I mean, you can get close, right? People have like their list of questions and they might be the same questions you've seen before, but you don't have to have the same conversation every time, right? I'd say it's almost impossible to have the same conversation every time. Well, and I and I do love that. I love the that you can you know, talking to someone is way more personal than, than a written interview. Because even when I'm, even when I have the tendency to babble and not be good at carrying on a really good conversation with you, we still will have conversation bits. Like, you know, it was really fun to talk to you about being in band, like right at the right. beginning. <laughs> like there's little bits like that, 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 you know, despite my love of hearing my own voice, it still is part of a conversation. Um, on that note, I know I have probably talked your ear off about podcasting stuff in general, just because it's something that's obviously near and dear to my heart. Uh, so let's talk a little bit at least about your own books. So we've talked a lot about your new Glass Immortals series and The Shadow of Lightning being the first book. Uh, so do you have kind of a quick pitch for us? Um, you know, I've been you know working on the elevator pitch for this, and it's it's one of those things that I I, I keep like having like because you you write it down, you know, like you write down an elevator pitch, and then and then I keep forgetting what it is. Um, Glass Immortals is a it's a world I created. Um, I, I wanted a world in which magic was cr was was made rather than innate, although there is innate magic in the world. Um, the predominant okay. magic in Glass Immortals is something called God Glass, and it's uh, it's these little glass baubles that are made in glassworks all over the world, refined from a certain type of sand. That uh, that when you wear the baubles, they enhance your abilities in different ways, depending on the impurities in the cinder sand and the process of making it. There's forge glass makes you stronger and faster and more durable. Um, wit glass makes your brain move quicker. Day's glass uh, essentially augments confusion, uh, gets you high, basically. The cure glass augments your ability to heal. Uh, there's all these different things. There's the, the idea is that there are a few dozen common god glasses and thousands of experimental ones or lost ones it's 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 kind of meant to be an infinite source of magic in ways uh in in different ways depending on how skilled the engineers that make them are um but it's essentially it's 
it's basically our oil. It runs the world. This God glass, you know, the, the, even the very poorest people need God glass to do their jobs. And obviously the very richest people have the very best God glass and, um, and they control all of the production and all of this stuff. So, so it's this kind of, um, this is a terrible elevator pitch. Let's just pretend we're going really <laughs> high in this elevator. Um, and so, so it's, uh, I've, I designed this world to be, to feel very Roman. I wanted it to be, um, late Roman Republic, this sort of massive empire that essentially rules the world. Um, and is ruled in turn itself internally by these large families, these guild families that are, you know, always jockeying for position and, and essentially, uh, and, and they, they, they have the, they've got their kind of fingers around the throat of God glass production. And so they essentially rule the world. And I, I loved this idea of a sort of 1800s government empire that, that feels very British and global, but it's very thuggish also. Um, think think kind of, you know, like late Roman Republic, but also meets sort of the um, uh, the Renaissance Italian city-states that are just these big families feuding over everything. They're, they're, they're in control of the finances and the... And even when there's, you know, like... Uh, in theory, a democracy, it's not really a democracy. Like I love this, this kind of brutal world that pretends that it's civilized, um, which is what you get a lot from, uh, some of this, these Mediterranean empires. And so in, in this world, we're basically thrown in, uh, with the scion of one of the minor guild families who was a child prodigy, and then had a mental breakdown and disappeared for the last nine years. Um, and he's been basically just wandering the provinces, being a friendly grifter kind of thing. Uh, and then he is found by one of his old friends who informs him that his mother has been murdered. And he has to come back to the capital, to this cutthroat, brutal place that caused him to have a mental breakdown and take over as head of the guild family and solve his mother's murder and immediately upon coming home right at the beginning of the book finds out that his mother was killed because the cinder sand this very important material that's used for making god glass all over the world it's running out and there is not a solution to this and it's running out quickly and how are we going to deal with any of this? This is this is a this is a civilization collapsing event, and everyone knows it, and no one's acknowledging that it's actually going to happen, you know. And so, uh, so that's basically the stage that we enter this book. I'm gonna I'm gonna need really tiny print to get that all on the back of the book. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, so so it's. It's got a lot of powder mage in it in terms of I love dealing with characters who are kind of broken geniuses, you know, people that that have had careers and that they've had successes and they've had failures, um, you know, kind of none, none of the kind of, you know, golden farm boys that we see so much in in epic fantasy. And I, I love character. I love, you know, the big military campaigns. Uh, I love the warriors, you know, people who are seriously good soldiers. You'll see. So a lot of what 
people really loved about Powder Mage. You're going to see reflected in this with a lot more... I don't know. I try not to turn anything into preaching or in, or into into really pointed socio-political commentary but it kind of happened by default because i'm dealing sure. with you know a finite resource which you know our real world deals with quite a lot and yeah it was it's like i was telling you earlier it's a step up in complexity in terms of you know emotional and political and intrigue and all those things um but also hopefully building on the things that I was very good at with Powder Mage. Yeah, no, that is a great elevator pitch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or at least a great pitch, right? Um, I, I have found that with Epic Fantasy in particular, but a lot of the stories I love, they just get so complex that if you want to sell someone on it, like it really is, okay, sit down, you know, grab a bite to eat. We're going to have a conversation <laughs> because not everything is as quick of a pitch as, you know, uh, collections agency for hell or, you know, you snort gunpowder and you can like control bullets. Well, and and the thing is, though, is that as a writer, and and I actually ran into this when I was a kid, you know, when I was a kid and somebody said, oh, what book are you reading? You know, I would do it to them what I just did to you. Um, (laughs) I've always struggled with that condensation. Um, But the fact is, is that the real elevator pitch is it's a magical world in which magic is running out and our hero has to figure out a way to solve this while solving his mother's murder. That's the elevator pitch. Yeah. I really should go. have led with that. <laughs> um, but you know, my 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 epic fantasy writer default is to just launch into vomiting details. Um, so you know, like maybe maybe when you're editing this, you can cut that and swing it around <laughs> and put it before what I just said to you. Oh no 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 no! Where's the fun in that? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think also, you know, you say this as someone, you would do this as a reader as well, right? I think that's something that a lot of us epic fantasy readers do as well, is we love kind of like, let give me all that information. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of people that you could, or as a reader, they could ask for, you know, what's the book about? If you just explained them the nitty gritty of the magic system, I think they'd be good. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, there's a lot of that there. Yeah. Uh, but okay, so I know from your podcast that you listen to at least some historical podcasts, notably Revolutions. Uh, any kind of historical tidbits or anything that you're able to work into this series? Um, you know, I, I feel like when I when I originally pitched this series to my agent, you know, the, a good two years before I even showed it to my editor, I initially I was listening to the Revolutions podcast i was listening to their take on the french revolution at the moment and i pitched this to my agent as a political thriller epic fantasy and and she basically said dear god don't do that you know you're an you're a military (laughs) epic fantasy writer stick with that and if you want to layer politics in great but keep it exciting and quick and i was like ah okay i guess but yeah i uh, but that being said i i definitely when you listen to stuff like, oh, I think one of the reasons lo- millions of people love podcasts like Revolutions or like uh, Hardcore History, um, it's because they take the time that you never get in school. Even if you're even even in uh, even at the university, you never get this. Um, they take the time to dig into the nitty gritty, to dig into kind of you know like the emotional 
core of what's going on, you know, why people did certain things, you know, why, why some things failed, why other things succeeded. And honestly, that's really what I like to put into the books and I, that I've been trying to put into this new book is that as a writer, when you're writing something, you have, it always has to be simplified from what it would be in the real world. It's impossible to have that many named characters. It's impossible to have that many subplots. You know, in in the real world, you have a, a political, a kingdom like like Game of Thrones is considered one of the more complex epic fantasies written, and it is. You know, and, and if if we were to truly take Game of Thrones and expand it in scale to reflect a real world kind of thing it would be thousands upon thousands of main characters, not just side characters or little people here and there. It would be thousands of main characters and, and you can't do that. Um, so, so part of the skill of doing all the, of, of writing something that's complex is, is boiling things down from their real life counterparts, but in a way that doesn't lose the feeling that you get from real life political intrigue or real life battles or, or duels, you know, things like that. You have to, you have to simplify things significantly, but keep the, the, the gist, I guess. (laughs) And that's a, it's, it's a weird thing to do when you're trying for, for complex uh, intrigue, political machinations, uh, things like that. But, um, but it's, it's really fun to do. Uh, and if you can do it right, it can be very frustrating at times. Um, because there's so much going on inside a single human being's brain. Uh, there people do incredibly stupid things because they weren't paying attention or because they have an ulterior motive that on a page doesn't make any sense. Um, but emotionally, in the real world, it makes all the sense. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing I like to boil down and explore, you know, is, is, is people who work against their own self-interest and they know they're working against their own self-interest because of an emotional response. You know, there's a, there's something that happens halfway through in the shadow of lightning that is literally that. And, uh, and that was a tough one to frame around because my beta readers all went, well, this is a really stupid decision this person made. It's clearly a stupid decision. They are smarter than that. And you have to, and, and I had to keep massaging that plot, that plot piece until it paid off emotionally. And the reader could say, yes, that was stupid, but I totally get why they did it. Um, and that's, you know, that's the kind of thing I really enjoy doing. Absolutely. And again, like you're saying, that's part of what makes history so fascinating is when you get to the emotional side of it. So it's just good storytelling. Um, yeah. But okay. So I do want to ask what is next for you, right? Where do you think you'll go from here as a writer? Obviously you've got the current series to still work on mm-hmm. and everything, but I'm curious, you know, are you, are you going to do a power made? Are you going to do a sequel trilogy of glass immortals? Are you going to do something totally new? What are you thinking? Gosh, you know what? I'm I'm at that position at the moment where I have no idea. Um, you know, I, I've got two more books under contract. Uh, one of those two books, you know, halfway finished. 
Uh, and I, you know, I'm in that spot where, where who knows, you know, my answer in two months could be very different than, you know, my answer right now, because, you know, if the book, if book one totally flops, then me as Brian McClellan, the business person has to totally re-strategize everything I'm doing. If the book absolutely blows up and just does amazing beyond my wildest expectations and my editor comes to me and says, Hey, why don't we make this a five book series? Then suddenly I am making a totally different set of, you know, business calculations, but also a totally different set of plot calculations, you know, like you have to suddenly say, okay, do I have the material for five books? You know? So, I mean, but I don't know which of those things are going to happen or the book will do perfectly fine. They'll want me to finish out the contract as agreed. And, in two, three years, I'll be done and I'll be looking around for something else to do. I, I, and that's I, that's probably the most likely thing to happen, uh, in which case, oh, great, I'll finally have the time to work on you know two or three more Valkyrie Collections books. Or maybe I'll write a Powder Mage novel, you know, a, a standalone book. Or maybe I'll do a sequel trilogy for Glass Immortals. Who knows? Like, there, I, I am... I'm very fortunate that my career has gone well enough that I have options. Um, and those options and the options I just laid out to you are just the options within my currently existing universes. You know, I could also work on something else. Who knows? Um, so, so yeah, you know, giant shrug, who knows? I, (laughs) I'm, I'm glad to not have to make the decision at the moment, but the decision is also one that is constantly evolving and changing, which which I don't think a lot of people understand when it comes to creative careers is that you know, a creative, you know, a creator can promise lots of things, but the their emotional state changes, their financial state changes, their publisher's financial state could change, um, yep. and yeah, you know, there's lots of th- there's lots of things that are constantly in flux uh, when you're creating things, and uh, so. So to to the best of my knowledge, uh, probably I'll finish this series out, do a whole bunch of my side projects, and then you know maybe pull one of my um, my little ideas out of the back of my head that I've had floating around, and I'll work on something different. Sounds like a plan, and like you said, good to have options. So uh, something I always like to ask people, is there any, and I know so you don't read a ton of fiction these days, so I'll expand, uh, is there any media you've consumed recently uh, that you've enjoyed and you can recommend? Can be books, movies, games, TV, music, podcasts, you know, whatever. Um, You know what, I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'll mention my favorite game of the last few years. It's a game called Valheim. It is uh, basically, uh, my wife describes it as Viking Minecraft. Um, okay. <laughs> it's, it's this absolutely badass game. I, so I, I'm really into city building type games and um, survival style games. This is a game in which you are, you, you play a Viking who has died and has been uh, brought to the um, realm of Valheim by Odin in order to fight his enemies in Valheim. And it is a, it is essentially a survival game, a survival crafting game, uh, where you, you know, explore this, uh, procedurally generated world with lots of different biomes and enemies and things. And you gather resources and you build cool castles 
and uh, workshops and you collect more resources and you create a network of portals all over the world and you can play multiplayer with your friends and do the same thing with them. And honestly, it's just this amazingly cool game. If you're into survival games or builder games at all, it's just absolutely dynamite. It's technically still in uh, early development, but it's one of those games that that feels very polished right off the bat. Um, and I, I cannot recommend it enough. It, it absolutely exploded. I think they recently announced that they passed 10 million sales. It, uh, so it's not a, it is an indie game, but it's, it, it has surpassed sleeper hit to become, you know, one of the most popular games of the last few years. So, you know, plenty of listeners will have heard of it at least. Um, and I just, I've put an amount of time I will not admit into that game over the pandemic. Uh, honestly, gosh, that probably psychologically helped me get through the pandemic. (laughs) So that's my that's my huge recommendation. I, I'm a I, I'm a pretty big gamer. I'm not a serious gamer, you know. I'm not into you know competitive games. I I'm not into kind of um, the esports scene or anything like that. But I I play a lot of games, and I um, and Valheim is just absolutely dynamite. I mean, this this is kind of I feel like the perfect writer answer too. Where you're like, you know, I like to take a break from my writing and world building by playing a game that is literally building worlds. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's a game that I I like it especially because it doesn't require that it it doesn't require you to be twitchy. It doesn't require you to keep track of a million things. I can put on a podcast in the background, and I can play this game for six hours straight. And also listen to the podcast. And when I'm done, I'll feel like I learned things from what I was listening to. But I also will feel very relaxed because I just kind of, you know, like I'm Viking Minecraft. I built a cool castle and I, you know, went adventuring a bit. And and maybe, maybe it was, you know, 2 a.m. and a buddy of mine signed in on the East Coast. And uh, he said, hey, I got the day off. You want to keep playing for a couple hours? And that happened. And And I love that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, play for six hours straight, listen to a podcast, that's almost enough time to get through one hardcore history episode. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Well, okay, so a way I like to close out these interviews is just asking you, what's one thing you're excited about right now? Can be anything. Ooh, excited about. Man, so... um... Gosh, like, honestly, the the dumb, simple answer is I've got a book out in a month. Um, and, And so... And and it's my and as we have discussed, it is my first epic fantasy that's not in the Powder Mage universe, um, and it's my first book from Tor. Uh, it's my first book in two and a half years, so I'm very excited about having a new book out. Um, but you know, we can keep beating that to death. Otherwise, um, I uh, honestly I'm excited to just you know we've had a pandemic for the last two and a half years. Um, Oh, I'm wow. excited yeah, to be, you know <laughs> I've been, I'm excited to be living like a proper existence again. Um, we went to Paris uh, two weeks ago and we ended up getting to see the Louvre and uh, Versailles and Napoleon's tomb and the military museum and then I got COVID for a week and was um, quarantined for six days in a uh, Parisian hotel room which, was tiny and rough, but also they brought me 
croissants every morning. So, you know, there are worse okay. quarantines. Um, so, but, you know, regardless of having that trip not end as well as I'd hoped, uh, I, I am exciting to, excited to like exist as a human being out in the world again. So, man, I mean, I don't know. That's just, that, that feels like kind of a cheap answer. You know, both of my answers feel kind of cheap, but, uh, but they're also true. <laughs> Yeah, you're allowed to be excited about anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, what? I'm actually very excited. I, I've been thinking since I got home three days ago, I've been thinking, man, you know what? It's time to resurrect the gaming group. You know, we haven't had a gaming group for three years, I think. Um, my, my writer friend, Dan Wells, uh, he, uh, I used to be in a gaming group with him for several years, and then it just kind of fell apart, you know, circumstance. Um, and then it fell apart hardcore because of the pandemic. And I'm thinking, you know what? I think I should text Dan and see if we can get this going again. And, and I'm, so that's, that is something that's a little different that I'm very excited about. Yeah. And that's, that's tabletop gaming, right? Yes. Tabletop gaming. Okay. Um, we, we spent a gosh, a good year of our gaming group was just Gloomhaven. And, uh, and I keep getting, uh, I keep getting email announcements from Frosthaven the sequel uh saying that it keeps getting delayed uh, so someday someday i'll have my gaming group back and we'll have the sequel to gloomhaven to play uh i don't know when that will be but i'm excited for that yes there you go and i will also cheat and ask you another last question and uh you may have heard this one before but what is the last meal you had that just blew your mind Oh, you're you're stealing you're stealing my. Um, I'm shamelessly stealing from you. My, my question from <laughs> me. Uh, okay, so I mean, I was literally just in Paris um, uh, for the first time, and I'll be honest, it was it was one of those things that I'm not even sure if I could point to a single meal as being all oh, of this thing blew my mind. But you know, in in Western culture, everyone makes fun of the French. Um, that is just a thing that's accepted, right? They make fun of the French because of their kind of sensual attitude towards pleasure. And I, I was there for like two and a half days and I went, why are we mocking this? This is the best thing I've ever experienced. And we should all be like this. You know, we should all spend three hours at dinner, just sitting there picking at charcuterie boards and drinking wine and you know discussing inane things like just you know watching people walk past outside like that was like amazing i absolutely adored that um i just you know like like that attitude towards towards just saying yeah you know let's just let's just sit back and enjoy ourselves my the very first night i got there i was incredibly jet lagged and my publisher said to me hey do you want to come get dinner with me and I said, okay, fine, we'll go to dinner. And then a couple hours passed, and my wife and I both made the mistake of laying down. And, <laughs> um, you know, it's about 6 o'clock their time, and I haven't slept for 27 hours. Um, and I looked at my wife, and I said, oh, okay, we can't do this. You know, we're both exhausted. And so I texted my publisher. I said, hey, we're going to have to pass. I'm really sorry. And he never responded. And then it came closer to when I was supposed to meet him down in the lobby. And I realized, oh, God, he's going to show up. He's going to be down there. And he's going to just wait for forever. And I'll be super rude. So I said, okay, you stay in bed. I'll go, I'll go have a short dinner with him. 
And, uh, and I threw on some clothes and I groggily, you know, kind of, you know, stumbled down there and he's like, Hey, yeah, let's go to dinner. And he hadn't gotten my text. I don't know. You have a weird <laughs> thing when your phone goes the international mode. And, uh, and we go to dinner for the next three and a half hours. <laughs> and, but the thing is, is that it was amazing. Like, like I had never been in Paris before. And literally the first thing I'm doing is the thing I just described to you of just sitting there, picking at charcuterie boards, you know, drinking wine, talking to this man who is so passionate about food and books and living his existence. And it was just this incredible experience uh, just in general, man, I don't even remember what I had for dinner. I think, I think I might've had a lamb shank, which was delicious. Um, but, but the experience itself, what was, what, what was, is what was incredible. Uh, I think my favorite thing I ate weirdly was Italian food. Um, I had a, <laughs> there was a very nice Italian restaurant right next to our hotel that we got, went to that, that I got, um, a, a, a chicken rigatoni, but it had, I, I don't like tomatoes terribly. I, uh, I love tomato sauce. I like tomatoes as a abstract concept, but tomatoes themselves, whole tomatoes, I find kind of ugh, gross. It's, I don't like them, but this rigatoni had sun dried tomatoes in them that tasted like they were candied. Like I've never had a flavor like that before. And I'm sure that, you know, people that are more widely you know, fed than I am will kind of roll their eyes and say, Oh yeah, sun-dried tomatoes. They're great. I can't believe that you didn't know that, but Holy crap, wherever this restaurant got their sun-dried tomatoes, they were some of the best things I've ever tasted in my life. And I, I don't know how I'm going to figure out how to make something or buy something similar to that in the U S. Uh, cause I don't even know where to start. You know, like when I lived in Cleveland, there's a lot of uh, European diversity in Cleveland, uh, European food diversity. And so I could have gone to Little Italy. I could have gone to one of many different Italian markets and just searched for things, you know, bought two dozen different cans of of sun-dried uh, tomatoes and tried them. But I can't really do that in Utah, unfortunately. Um, so so that's going to be a quest at some point. Uh those sun-dried tomatoes, though, that's my okay. That's my firm answer. After ten minutes of babbling at you, um, <laughs> is sun-dried tomatoes from that little Italian place really close to the Louvre. Ah, uh, those things were so good. Yes, and like any good fantasy author, you get to leave that meal with a quest. So, on that note, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, Brian. This was a great chat. I had a ton of fun. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. You can find Brian McClellan on Twitter as Brian T. McClellan or at his website, brianmcclellan.com. Fans of the Powder Mage books will find much to love within the shadow of lightning, but it offers plenty for new readers to adore as well. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyinn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider leaving us a review online. It only takes a minute of your time and helps others find the show. Plus, it's guaranteed to make my day. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all our future episodes. That's it for this week. Until next time. <laughs>